0: This is a KTF Press podcast.
1: I think there's something else emotionally that's happening where evangelicals are trying to evoke disgust as an emotion, as a mobilizing force among their voter base. People don't want other people to think deeply, they just want you to feel something.
0: Welcome to Shake the Dust, leaving colonized faith for the kingdom of God. I am Jonathan Walton here with Susie LaHood and Sai Hoekstra. Thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Today we are going to be talking about um, abortion, the theology, and the politics around it. Um, so a couple notes before we get started on that. One is uh, just the topic in and of itself, I think, is kind of its own content warning. But, you know, there are issues of domestic violence and and potentially sexual assault that will come up around that conversation Uh, That will come up around the conversation, and um, in addition to that, I I just wanted to particularly note for this episode, we are recording uh, this on May third. We recorded some of these before we got the season started, and um, it's the day after we learned uh, from the leaked Supreme Court opinion, which is kind of a wild idea in and of itself. But the leaked Supreme Court opinion um, that that is likely going to overturn Roe versus Wade. In the coming month and a half or so before the supreme court term is over and um so I, I just wanted to acknowledge up top this is this is a heavy emotional topic to begin with and it's going to be uh an extremely fraught topic in the in the next couple of months there are implications beyond just the issue of abortion um, but that is where we're going to be focusing today in an attempt to try and get a better handle on uh, where the church uh, can and, and should be on these issues. Before we get started, as always, I just want to make a quick plug for everybody to go to ktfpress.com slash free month and look into the subscription uh, for this show. If you appreciate what we do here at KTF Press in general or here on Jake the Dust, this uh, is the best way for you to support us is to sign up as a monthly or or annual subscriber that gets you our weekly newsletter with recommendations from all three of us on political education and discipleship. That gets you the bonus episodes of this show of which there are now several hours. We did a show every month in the off season and um, that, you know, you're also supporting that all the work that we do our upcoming books and everything. So uh, we would really appreciate it if you went and looked up that if uh, you can't go to KTF and become a subscriber, We would also really appreciate your support in the form of following us on social media at KTF press on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And uh, we would love for you to follow this show on your podcast player to rate us, to review us. If your player lets you do that. Um, And I think that is it for me, Susie. Tell us. I'm very excited about this person. Please tell us who we have with us on the show today.
3: Yeah. Our guest today is Mako Nagasawa, author of the book, Abortion Policy and Christian Social Ethics in the United States. Mako studied industrial engineering and public policy at Stanford with a focus on education. He worked at Intel Corp for six years while serving a Spanish-speaking ministry to Mexican immigrants in East Palo Alto, California. He has also worked for two startup companies trying to bring technology and jobs to inner-city communities in Boston, Massachusetts. Since 2000, Mako and his family have lived in a Christian intentional community house in a black and brown neighborhood in Dorchester. Mako has done campus ministry since 2001 and founded the Anastasis Center in 2014. He is a Master of Theological Studies from Holy Cross Greek Orthodox Seminary. Mako, thank you so much for joining us on the show today.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's
3: great to be with you. Well, we're just so grateful to have this, uh, as I said, uh, difficult, but I think important conversation with you today and your book certainly brings so much to this, uh, this discussion. And so just to start us off, your, your book, a lot of the work that it does is placing our current abortion debate in its historical context. A context that unfortunately many Christians, I think, know very little about. And so just to start us off, could we do a lightning round of you giving some brief responses to some basic things people might believe about the history of abortion, politics, and theology, just to give people a sense of how much more information there is to learn. Would you be up for doing that?
1: Sure. I'll do my best.
3: All right. So first, first point, the Bible and church tradition clearly teach that life begins at conception.
1: That, that is not true um, and the, to distinguish the Bible from church tradition first of all <laughs> that, that that tells us that okay I, I am coming at this as a Protestant yeah <laughs>
3: mm, great point yeah. <laughs> the,
1: the, the, there is one passage that is the single most important passage on this issue because it talks about the moral weight of the unborn fetus and that is Exodus 21. Verses 22 to 25, it's, it's a situation where uh, a pregnant woman is struck and, and something happens from there. And, and so the, um, the Hebrew and the Greek Septuagint translation of that passage do not agree with each other. Okay, mm-hmm. So that's, number one, fascinating and important. Uh, but not only that, neither one can be interpreted to mean that legal human personhood begins at conception. So the Hebrew Masoretic text says it's birth and breath. And so the majority Jewish position on abortion says birth and breath constitute full legal personhood. Uh, and, and then the Greek Septuagint says something about fetal formation, which is difficult to understand exactly what it has in mind. So the, the uh, but in any case, the idea that the, the Bible teaches that full human personhood begins at conception is not true Hmm. and then you get into church tradition so broadly speaking the greek east and the latin west went in different directions on the fetus and abortion because they relied on science the science of their day and different scientific influences and in a nutshell the galen and hippocrates uh, were, were influences on the Greek East, and Aristotle was an influence in the Latin West, and and they had a difference of opinion, and they were aware that they had this difference of opinion, and uh, and so church tradition does not agree on on what to do.
3: Mm-hmm. So, second point: Historically, Christians have advocated for policies punishing abortions regardless of the mother's circumstances.
1: No, that is not true. Not until nineteen eighty. What, 1980,
2: what happened in 1980? <laughs> what was the position before that?
1: First of all, I should say Catholics and Protestants went in different directions for quite some time. But in, in 1980, that's when the uh, the GOP and the Republican Party used the Southern strategy and abortion to bring in conservative Protestants into the GOP away from the Democratic Party.
4: Mm-hmm. And
1: so that's when things started changing. Uh, until then, the Southern Baptist Convention said that uh, abortion should be legal for all. You know the ex- typical exceptions: rape, incest, and fetal deformity, because of the likelihood of harm to the physical, mental, and emotional state of the mother. Mm-hmm. Uh, after that point, the, the the logic of retribution started to be applied to abortion policy. So. So, so we moved abortion policy away from a social welfare primarily issue over to a criminal justice issue, and Mm -hmm. that changed.
2: Which makes so much sense for 1980 and the era of expanding mass incarceration and all of that.
4: Mm Powell and and
2: Jerry Powell, yes, right, exactly. (laughs) Um,
1: go ahead, Susie. Sorry. Uh,
3: next one: Conservative Protestants in the U.S. have historically been anti-abortion.
1: So that is um complicated but in the in the sense that we typically think about it no it was not until 1980 when conservative Protestants and like the moral majority thought being uh, uh, they should be anti-abortion before that they thought being anti-abortion was a Catholic thing
3: hmm. um the sanctity of life has been the primary justification for the anti-abortion movement in. US history
1: well <laughs> they're, they're in a in a formal sense, um, sometimes, right? So there there may be well-meaning people who believe in the sanctity of life and say that that's the reason. And But the leaders of policy shifts were not motivated by the, the sanctity of life. It was that at different times in US history, anti-abortion laws were motivated by, for example, anti-poisoning, Of the mother because the the doctors who formed the ama and in 1840 wanted to get rid of the quacks who were prescribing poisons for abortion so uh, abortion was kind of used as an issue for other reasons and 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 historically that's it's pretty clear that that's how it's been used so then um, meanwhile the doctors practiced abortion in their clinics so that's why we We know that it was anti-poisoning, not anti-abortion. And then, you know, later anti-abortion laws were motivated by WASP elites, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant elites who were anti-immigrant and anti-Catholic. So, you know, with all these Catholic immigrants from Ireland, Italy, Germany, Poland, they came and had big families. And and so the leaders of uh, Anglo-Saxon Protestant communities were afraid of being replaced by these people who were not white at the time. To- they were not considered white at the time. And so they started to push anti-abortion. Um, but the South was different because uh, the, the, they were more accepting of abortion because of anti-blackness and the prevalence of rape. And just to deal with that made, made it easier uh, for, for white supremacy. So it, it, was, it was complicated.
3: Yeah, I have to say, Mako, that's one of the most incredible things I think about your book is how you remove the veil on how this debate has been utilized and almost weaponized at certain times throughout history. So, again, thank you for taking us through that at such a rapid pace, but certainly so much to unpack there. And then the final thing that we wanted to sort of throw at you countries that have laws outlawing abortion have fewer abortions.
1: I think generally what we are interested there is is that um, it's the overall approach so countries mm-hmm. that outlaw abortion because they take a criminal justice style approach to it like uganda actually have the highest rates of abortion uh because the, it also accompanies the the belief that look, this is your own choice. It's your own failing. If you have sex before you're ready, if you have a child before you're ready. And so, you know, the the tendency for social welfare supports to be there also drives people to have abortions. And as opposed to, let's say, Western Europe, where there are some um, anti-abortion laws, like after the first trimester, but uh, the the rates of abortion are the lowest in in the world because Mm. there's stronger social welfare programs and they take a social welfare approach. Yeah.
2: Thank you so much for going through that. Um, I hope that gives people a sense of kind of, A, your your breadth of knowledge on the subject, and B, Mm. how much much there is for everybody to learn here um, and how important it is for us to learn those things before we jump into giving our opinions on the subject. I I was, you have a lot of historical context in your book, as as I'm sure people have now, you know, heard from what you've said, could you give us kind of a broad overview of how the uh, position among Protestants in the United States has changed uh, over time in in the U.S.?
1: Sure. That's a, that, that's a, it's a fascinating story. So, um, you know, at the time of the U.S. Constitution, when it was written, uh, Catholics and Protestants alike believed in quickening and quickening was the halfway point uh, in the pregnancy where mom felt the baby kick. And that was, again, based on this idea from the Greek Septuagint translation, which said fetal formation happens at some time, some undefined time. And uh, the, the, the Latin West, meaning Catholics and Protestants, just accepted that that uh was responsible for motion.
2: Meaning, ensoulment, meaning the literal moment that a soul enters a baby.
1: That's right. That's right. And mm. so, that's why it was important for mom to feel the baby kick. So, somehow the physical formation of the fetus was ready enough for God to ensoul the fetus. And that, con- that meant the baby kicked. And it obviously was subjective and all that. But um, the the practice of abortion was, was considered okay up until that point. So that started to change in the U.S. in the 1800s because doctors were concerned about the quacks. So the quacks were running around, you know, these were the snake oil salesmen, and they would sell a lot of things uh, and, and be very duplicitous, and they would sell poison to women. Uh, to cause abortions. So the doctors started to become anti-abortion in the sense that they they were against poisoning. So this was also a way to get the public to believe that the the AMA and licensed physicians really was was qualitatively different than than buying poison from like the 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 guy running around with a wagon.
0: Mhm. The American Medical Association, right? Right.
1: The American Medical Association. So that was another step. Um, At the time of the Civil War, though, uh, what we would call evangelical Protestants accepted abortion. So, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. up to the point of quickening, again, because um, the idea was you want to have fewer kids because then you could raise them better. (laughs) Now, whether that's... True or not, I'll leave that up to you. But that—that's—that was what they thought, mm-hmm. and that those attitudes continued on, uh, even when immigrant uh, immigrants came from Catholic countries and they had big families, right? So in the north, it was uh, Irish, Italian, German, and so on, and in the west, it was uh, Mexican Catholics, and and so the the Protestant communities were. Getting quote unquote replaced, or that was the fear, and so the leaders of those communities, both in the church and the doctors, because the doctors also tended to be Protestant, um, the the elites started to try to persuade women not to get abortions. So Theodore Roosevelt, who who winds up also being a you know a big racial replacement uh, fear monger, um, go, goes around asking uh wasp women not to get abortions so that was happening in the the north and the west in the south though because um gosh there's no easy way to say this but because biracial children or the offspring of a a white man and a black woman could no longer be enslaved um, there was not an economic reason to to keep those kids so uh, they actually the southern states actually held on to quickening um, for decades. Uh, uh, and I'm not sure exactly when each one changed, but well until like I think 1910 Kentucky had quickening in their state laws as the the marker versus the you know the the folks in the north and the west became anti-abortion. In in policy, even though doctors continued to perform abortions, but in any case, the politics of reproduction has always been linked among Protestants to uh, race, economics, uh, professionalization, and and things like that. Wow. Now, in the nineteen fifties, that's where you know by that time the the, the Catholics had changed their position in eighteen sixty nine, and uh, they. catholic democrats catholics were largely democrats because they supported the new deal Mm -hmm. and uh they were anti-poverty and and pro-labor and and yes they were anti-abortion because they saw that the great depression uh made people get abortions because if you have no hope why would you bring children into the world so so to them economics was a or poverty was a driver of the abortion rate but in the 50s 60s and then and later on um slowly um uh, white evangelicals started to tie the abortion rate to poverty in the opposite way so they, they thought it's just your fault right if you bring children into poverty so uh in the 1950s they uh, they were already start mobilized against Brown v. Board. And, and so this, this rhetoric of unelected judges making decisions for us and states' rights, that comes from the anti-civil rights movement, especially among white evangelicals. And then that, that language became um, used and drawn into the convergence of the pro-life movement with the Republican Party. So in 1980, that came to kind of this uh, this this point of uh, convergence with the moral majority, Jerry Falwell, Paul Wyrick, and others.
0: Yes, I'm going to resist the urge to talk about Jerry Falwell and all of that, and take a little <laughs> bit of a pivot <laughs> um, to jump into the the beginning of the book. Uh, you you start to draw a thread from the anti-science sentiment that emerged in both the Protestant and Catholic church in the midnight 1800s and a loss of nuance regarding abortion within the church. Can you, can you unpack that a little bit? Sure. So until 1869, the Roman
1: Catholic church believed that uh, abortion was okay until the point of quickening. And again, that was based on, uh, Well, the Greek Septuagint translation, it was uh, also based on Augustine's view, uh, Thomas Aquinas, multiple popes during the medieval period had said that. I mean, Mm. it is striking. Mm. Um, In 1869, they changed their position and they, they said, we believe now personhood begins at the moment of conception based on moral probability. And moral probability is not certainty, but it's basically it's, we we don't want to take the risk that we're killing uh, a person. And so there's a moral probability that that's the, the case from the moment of conceptions. And, and so that's how they argued. Um, in 1870, and, and by the way, it's because we were learning more about the fetus from a scientific standpoint. So the Catholic Church in many ways is responding to science and trying to make a good faith response. However, at the same time, they're also afraid of science and afraid that science is going to dethrone uh, the church, the, the the authority of the clergy, and, and especially when it comes to scripture. Uh, this is the, the deconstruction of scripture happening uh, through what's called literary criticism. So <clears throat> the Catholics were mostly concerned about that I mean they I think they had some reservations about Darwin and Darwinism um, being taught around this time but in in 1869 they they shift on abortion uh, or they sh- I should say they shift on personhood and the point at which they're uh, saying it begins but it's also really intriguing that in 1870 in Vatican 1 they shift on the authority of the Pope so they they declare, the doctrine of papal infallibility, and you could tell this is motivated by fears of science, because mm-hmm. they they thought science is is creating a structure of knowledge, and so as the church or as a Christian faith, how how do we compete with that structure of knowledge? Well, it's to declare that our guy is is never wrong when he sits <laughs> sits on the chair, right ex cathedra. So that had never been said before, and it's it's really hard to project that backwards because popes change their policies. <laughs> I mean, at one point there were three popes. So, hmm. so the idea uh, that all of a sudden, like papal infa- infallibility, comes about at the same time you say that um, human personhood begins at conception, in all probability, I think reveals something. It. I think it reveals a concern to respond to science and in some ways to maintain your relevance so i would interpret that as uh in 1869 that the church is saying the catholic church is saying uh, we're going to make an argument about human personhood and abortion that science just could never touch could never prove and and we're going to locate it here that will guarantee that we will always be relevant in the meantime, keep in mind that the church is also arguing about contraception and saying because there's all these new contraception techniques, right? Like uh, the condom had been developed recently. The idea of the condom had been around, but the, the condom itself had had been developed fairly recently around, around that time. And then if
2: you add in industrialization and mass production, mm. that's a, that's a really big new issue that you're dealing with.
1: That's right. So that is what the Catholic Church is is dealing with in the eighteen hundreds.
2: Could, could we jump to I, you? You this part I thought was really interesting for so that we're not just sort of um, Protestants talking about the Catholic Church. You draw you draw a parallel to basically the rise of um, the kind of uniquely twentieth century idea of infallibility and inerrancy of Scripture, which is the parallel Protestant move to. The, what you just described? Could you, could you, explain into that a little bit?
1: Well, in, in 1902 fundamentalists, uh, what we now call fundamentalist evangelicals published the, 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 the fundamentals. It was a brochure outlining, uh, kind of fundamentals of, uh, Protestant Christian faith and basically saying scripture in its original autographs, those are infallible. Like that. Those are absolutely trustworthy, totally authoritative and, and so on um and and it was the protestant version of the catholic statement of papal infallibility right like well we need to compete with science somehow and and so you know it's a little uh it well it it's interesting when you place it in context because at that time there were evangelicals who still believed that uh chattel slavery was biblical who thought mm-hmm. like if you support um uh scripture then you should support the return of chattel slavery i mean i think that was the position of princeton theological seminary for some decades and right. and so they they felt they they felt attacked they the protestants did right the conservative protestants felt uh oh the 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 country they abolished slavery and and now we have this uh progressive protestant wing and so they they were feeling like the minority and beleaguered, and so on and so forth. And then there was the 1925 Scopes trial where creationism versus evolutionism was a kind of on display in front of the nation. And of course, um, fundamentalists were very concerned about that. And uh, that, that was another kind of a blow to the the fundamentalists who insisted on, you know, in my view, the, the worst possible interpretation of Genesis 1 that these these were six twenty four hour days and and so on and so many doubled down. Um, uh, uh, this became part of this kind of approach to scripture became part of a resistance to science.
2: And I I think we should probably just note that I think whenever you talk about like the you know infallibility or, or inerrancy of scripture. People don't necessarily realize that that's like a 20th century invention. (laughs) And and that doesn't mean that nobody before then was concerned about like the authority of scripture, (laughs) like whether anything that scripture says is true or anything like that. It's just, there was, there was this, this context and the characterization of the Bible having, you know, absolutely not one error in it and everything being literally true is a, is a recent invention in one relatively small wing of the church.
3: Right. And that that's a separate discussion from, say, divine inspiration.
1: Right, right. And so scripture could be authoritative because it's inspired and it points us to Jesus, for instance. That's the traditional way of understanding scripture. Infallibility means uh, without error in regards to a whole bunch of other things, like, like history, science, and, and so on.
3: Another thing that we wanted to dig into with you is you also talk in your book about the social context in which debates around abortion need to be understood, particularly as it pertains to the rights and agency of women. And so could you just sort of dig into that a little bit more? Um, you begin sort of in the in the Greco-Roman world, but then you also bring it forward into the world today. Yeah. Could you get into some of that from the book?
1: Absolutely. I think it's really important to recognize to today, for example that there are there there are ways that policies complement one another or they they reflect a a whole package of views uh i in the book, I talk about a uh, North Carolina law about uh men being able to uh continue on with sex, even if a woman were to withdraw her consent. Mm. So while they were having sex, and apparently this came about because uh, some men uh, took off their condom during sex. And then the woman said, wait a minute, I refuse to go on. And, And essentially North Carolina said, no, the man has a right to continue. Now that I think is just absurd. And other states, for example, California, say that is rape, right? Like to to continue on in the act of sex when one partner has withdrawn their consent, it is uh, is rape. That's what I mean by we have to look at the social context and especially the rights and agency of women, because you would think that if you're against abortion or if you if you want to keep the abortion rate low, uh, then you would, you would be against laws like the one in North Carolina. Hmm. But, but somehow different states uh, uh, seem to incorporate abortion and other aspects of reproductive politics into a larger package of policy views that are stripping rights from women, stripping agency from women. And I look at what scripture says about the relative power of, of women to men. And I reached conclusions that are, are surprising to me. Sometimes I read the book again yesterday and I thought, wow, this is, this is amazing. <laughs> so for example, not, not the book, but the, the fact that for example, <laughs> Jewish, Jewish and Christian tradition recognize these things for, for example, um, Jewish law recognizes that women are more, vul- that w- wives are more vulnerable than husbands in marriage itself, which, I mean, mm-hmm. in the ancient world, that is undeniably true. So in Exodus 21, there's this, this small place where it says wives are entitled to uh, food and, and shelter and conjugal rights, meaning sexual pleasure and husbands are not entitled to the to, to sexual pleasure from their wives i and the jewish tradition and all rabbis are just uniformly recognizing this and uh, and and what that means is what that means is that um jewish law recognizes that marital rape can happen it can mm. happen and they are against it they mm. they interpret scripture as being against it so and -hmm. and that's different than let's say the uk or the us until the 70s and 80s uh our laws said marital rape is not even a thing legally because the the presumption is when a woman says yes at the altar she says yes to every other time after that even Mm -hmm. if her husband has, uh, been separated from her and returns and, and demands sex, even if he acquires AIDS or a venereal disease, right? Like she cannot say no because at the altar, she said yes. Jewish law goes completely opposite of that. And, and that is based on not just Exodus 21, but also the, the recognition in Jewish law that, um, uh, laws favor the vulnerable. That you want to protect the the party that's more vulnerable, and and that is also seen in the uh, the rape case in Deuteronomy 22. It's which is you need two to three witnesses to make an accusation against someone else. But in the case of rape, the woman's voice counts as the two to three, so you don't need others. And of course, there's not going to be witnesses. To the crime. There may not even be character witnesses to, his, to the guy's character. Essentially, Jewish law or s- scripture on the whole advantages women over men in certain cases. That is really significant.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: And I think that the Christian church recognized this early on when they said that prostitution is a form of slavery. So they said we don't want. We recognize prostitution is a problem, but what kind of problem is it? Is it a problem where the woman who is a prostitute is is guilty of sin? Like, is she is she committing a sin? Um, now, many folks would say yes, absolutely, but but the early church said no. So, as early as the Council of Elvira in Spain, and maybe three o six, um, in the year three o six, they said essentially, no, the the woman is not guilty of personal sin. Prostitution is a social sin. And essentially what they're doing is they're recognizing there are many reasons why a woman might be a prostitute. She could be uh, being blackmailed. She could have been kidnapped. She could have been abandoned by her parents and then raised by a pimp. Right. I mean, or she could be in poverty and this might be her only way of, of making a living. And the The Council of Elvira said, "We understand that, and we we don't think it's a good situation for her to be in, so as much as possible, we want to provide a way out but the the personal sin is on the man, the man buying sex from prostitute. What are his motivations? Well, really, there's only one motivation for that, and it's always sinful
4: mm-hmm.
1: so so they they recognize that there are situations where women are more vulnerable than men in, in these situations. And they, they continued on, Uh, and, and church tradition, especially, oh, when you get to Pulcheria in the, in the fourth century, who basically was like a, a Roman emperor for a time. And then Theodora and Justinian in the 500s, they, they change a lot of laws, uh, out of Christian conviction about, Women's rights, women's right to own property, women's access to their children, and so on and so forth. So that's a it's a big deal when we look at Christian tradition as a whole and how much they focused on the well-being of the woman.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: Which is a, a little bit wild when you consider where we are today in terms of how people think about abortion. Because I, I think in your in your book you also talk about how they they basically said the same thing about abortion, right? They made exceptions, right? or bans on abortion for for women who were in like material need. Right, um, which was a lot of people back then, right? Like that was a right. very large chunk of the women.
1: Yes, yes I. Technically, I think Basil of Caesarea in his epistle number two, 219 uh is talking about infanticide and and he is talking as a church leader about uh but it would cover abortion. But a, a church leader about like what kind of church discipline should we have um and and that's a whole other topic but essentially yeah uh he said yeah infanticide is never desirable and and uh for for most cases we would say 10 years of going without communion or something like that and however if the the mother or the parents are in poverty then it's understandable it's understandable that they would commit infanticide because maybe they're they're having to choose between different children, right, or something like that. So, so they look at infanticide and abortion within a social context and not just as an individual issue. And because they do that, they have a a, a lot of um, uh, I think compassion and sensitivity to to social welfare
2: could i i want to talk about um the question of disability for a minute because this is actually wh- where we just went with this conversation is where i start to get nervous <laughs> and yeah. so I, I think listeners probably know i'm i'm blind and it's the result of a genetic condition and i've been told you know by doctors before that oh we can we can get rid of this genetic condition now by you know detecting it in the womb and aborting fetuses and so, we, you know, we, I, I normally hate talking about abortion. <laughs> I, I've appreciated this conversation because you're digging into nuance on a level that we don't normally. But I normally hate talking about it because basically I, the, the, it's really hard to get like any real disability acknowledgement of the, the pain involved. Because mm-hmm. a lot of times the, the pro-lifers, the conservative movement want to talk about these issues of how, you know, the overwhelming number of children with Down syndrome are aborted. Um, who, when it's detected in the womb, right? Or, or whatever, and, and kind of right. use the disability rights movement to put forward their cause, but otherwise say nothing about disability. You know, like you were saying, you're not talking about social welfare for disabled people that would actually mm. prevent probably some abortions if you were supporting uh, disabled people in real ways, that sort of thing. Yeah. And then a lot of times the pro-choice movement is just sort of because they want to fight the pro-life narrative and make everything about, uh just autonomy over your own body it it becomes an issue where i'm i i'm not i'm not against any of that i understand your political needs i just there needs to be some amount of recognition that the the result the impact of legal abortions is taking out entire populations of disabled people is like when when you have any system like that it's going to run uh, like along the lines of existing discrimination and existing um you know, prejudices that people have. And like, that's, that's what shows up in abortion. And so I, I don't, you know, I'm not someone who says, let's ban it. Let's, let's criminalize it. Let's whatever. But I just have a hard, cause I, 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 w- I will also say abortion is a disability rights issue to a certain degree, abortion access. Cause there are plenty of people with medical conditions and disabilities where pregnancy is a death sentence, right? Mm-hmm. So right. The, mm-hmm. like abortion actually needs to be available, uh, in order to have, the mother not die of the child who's being born and also potentially the child dying as well. Right. Um, right. and I, so anyways, I, I'm wondering where all of that I just rambled for a bit, but I'm, I'm, you know, this is, this is a hard thing for me to process. Sometimes I'm wondering where you think disability and eugenics and all those questions plays into this debate in, in any significant way. If, if, if you have thoughts on that.
1: Well, a, a few si, And as you said, it, it is, uh, kind of, the, the two issues or the two sets of issues are often brought together in, in ways that are, um, not always coherent and, and not always consistent. So, so when we look at reasons for why, um, women or married couples say that they procure abortions, I, th- I think we have to take that seriously. Now, it, it's, it's not that we always can you know, agree. For instance, uh, you know my personal view of of Down syndrome. When, when you have uh, such a a situation where you know the majority of of parents and siblings of a Down syndrome child and sibling uh, say, this person has made my life richer. Um, like our family life is is richer. You know, who who is it that calls that? The Down syndrome person a a liability exactly, and so I th- think it is a, a tragedy that up to ninety two percent of kids detected in the womb with Down syndrome are aborted. In in the book, and that I don't consider every single uh, disability, whether it's genetic, epigenetic, environmentally caused, and, and right. things like that. I I, I felt like that's that goes really really far and the book was already feeling really long <laughs>
4: um
1: but but i would say that um it is it, it is really hard for me to believe the current pro-life movement when they say uh, we are for life uh when they also want to strip out funding from public education and the for example
2: or social security disability income, which is... You know.
1: Exactly, because the, the first people affected are usually uh, special needs uh, folks. And again, th- I think the bigger issue is, are we treating abortion as part of a criminal justice paradigm or are we treating it as part of a social welfare, public health paradigm?
4: Mm-hmm. And
1: and the, the reports from pe- women who procure abortions indicate we should treat it as part of a social welfare, public health issue. When when over 14% of all abortions are procured by married women, right? That's really serious. Even married people, probably for economic reasons, are stressed and parenting is hard. So, you know, the folks get abortions because they, they can't afford another child, either economically or emotionally or what do we do with the fact that women at the poverty line have three times the level uh, uh, in terms of the abortion rate of of women who are not in poverty that tells us a great deal about mm-hmm. why it is that uh, people have abortions and, yes. and and so if we if we believe that we should at a minimum try to bring down the abortion rate um by bringing down the the rate of unintended pregnancies then then i think we have to move abortion away from just a criminal justice issue over to a social, part of our social welfare
3: going going along with that could you talk to us about policy responses to abortion that the pro life movement has put forward in the us And why you see them as inadequate or harmful, what are the factors that you think we should take into account when shaping abortion policy? Again, building off of this this really helpful paradigm shift that you just shared with us.
1: Sure. Traditionally, the pro-life movement has, um, well, I would say in the past few decades, has tried to see abortion as an issue where um, the fetus is the victim, the mother is the secondary victim. And the doctor is the the criminal, and and so the uh, responses to that have been, well, um, we should strip the doctor of a license, or you know, so on and so forth. So I think the inadequacy of that is, it again, it is treating. Uh, the 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 doctor or the healthcare system as part of the criminal justice system, right? So those folks have to become mandated reporters. Um, people in cl- like nurses, administrators, doctors in clinics where where they suspect maybe abortion is is being practiced by someone, one of their colleagues. They have to tell on that person, or at least that's the theory. At times, uh, mm-hmm. I go through a couple examples where that couple of states where that is actually being carried out. but essentially um, we have a decade's worth of data prior to Roe v Wade of how am- those kinds of anti-abortion laws did not actually stop abortions they just made it really easy for wealthy white women and connected women you know to get abortions kind of in secret and mm-hmm. uh, women of color or poor women, are are forced to get back alley abortions and so on because it it does not actually affect the the abortion rate what it winds up doing is it winds up creating an atmosphere like prohibition created for alcohol
4: mm-hmm. namely
1: police officers became totally corrupted by uh kickbacks or or ways that they were even invested in it right and so so when it came to abortion there's just story after story of um you know, for example, there was one story of a doctor in, um, in coal country in Pennsylvania, who, uh, he was performing abortion. There was abortion tourism going on because people would travel, uh, to this town to get an abortion. And so it actually, uh, fed the local economy in that sense. And, and so one person, you know, tried to run against this, uh, or tried to run for district attorney or something and promised to throw this doctor in, in jail. But it, it never worked because the police, um, they and their families all benefited from the services this doctor provided. The, uh, doctors were brought to trial. The juries would just say not guilty. Um, mm. there, there were some token people, usually you know doctors who were about 65 and ready to retire and the law enforcement would go after them as kind of a token gesture but it i mean it is really weird uh so when you read mark Graber's book uh, on abortion policy it is it is stunning how uh, anti-abortion laws in that sense warped law enforcement uh the mm-hmm. medical profession and and so on so treating it as part of a a criminal justice paradigm, again, is, it is really dangerous. It, it puts people into, it puts doctors into the situation of, for example, having to turn down a suicidal pregnant woman who, who says she's going to kill herself because she didn't expect to be pregnant. And then doctors are supposed to say no to that. It, it puts everyone in a really, really hard situation. Now, now, granted, no one's in a good situation, but I think there are factors that, like that that we should take into account. Um, another policy that the pro-life movement tends to be against is um, meaningful contraception. <laughs> and so, so copper IUDs, for instance, are the single most effective way of, uh, especially for poor women, of having reliable birth control. But... Uh, conservative lawmakers will vote against programs giving giving out free copper IUDs or other contraceptive care related to, for example, the Affordable Care Act, uh, because they don't want to quote-unquote fund abortion. The problem with that, I, I get into this in the book, is that the most conservative that, that you could be about when ensoulment happens is probably at 23 days, right, which is well out, and I could explain that, Later, but it it's well outside the range in which a copper IUD is uh, it could might be able to cause an abortion if it allows a fertilization but causes non-implantation in the uterus. Oh my gosh, it it's so complicated. So so yeah. we so conservative lawmakers are their their own worst enemy in that case because they are uh, throwing out the single most effective uh tool that would prevent um unintended pregnancies and and abortions
2: and i think that that really does highlight the degree to which preventing abortion is is not necessarily about preventing abortion exactly (laughs) right like like you were saying before right it it is about punishing people women who have been promiscuous or whatever right is it is about um, controlling people's sexual activity more than it is uh, about the sanctity of life or, or whatever.
1: That's right. An- another good example, sigh is, um, yeah. is sex education in public schools, mm-hmm. right? In, in, in mm-hmm. Texas, for instance, and I think this is true in other school districts, they want to only have abstinence-only sex education. Well, that is the single most
0: ineffective uh, approach to having sex education. Michael, I have a lot of thoughts um you're you're well aware of like the anti-intellectualism that's embedded itself into the like white evangelical moral majority, right? Um, is it possible for you to to help draw the line Because you said it was a hundred years later, and effectively white evangelicals were having the same argument, the same problem that the scholars a hundred years before in the Catholic Church were having. They're afraid of losing influence, afraid of losing power, afraid yep. of losing these things. And therefore you construct a narrative, in an institution that then protects the institution and the individuals in it right. and disadvantages the communities around it. So can you can you explain how they are not different? Like we're doing the same thing, if that makes sense.
1: Sure. I, I think they're they're different ways. Well. Jonathan, there may be different ways in which you mean that, but there are certainly ways that I hear your question, and right, I, right. I think <laughs> so. There's definitely similarities with the anti-science standpoint, right. the anti-intellectual view. When you look at uh, uh, Paul Brown, who's a Republican congressman, and I talk about him in, in Chapter One, and the the amount of uh, being against evolution, against Uh, standard geology Mm -hmm. and, and against embryology, which is, Mm
4: -hmm. which is
1: Mm -hmm. crucial because that's also the, the field of embryology is telling us something uh, about how human personhood cannot possibly be traced back to the moment of conception. That's really Mm -hmm. important. And and so if you say, Oh, well, I'm just going to throw out that field of science and you claim to be a doctor and a lawmaker, then you can tell there's anti-intellectualism going on. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there's something else emotionally that's happening where, uh, where I think evangelicals are trying to evoke disgust as an emotion, as a mobilizing, uh, as a mobilizing force among Mm -hmm. their voter base. Mm -hmm. And and so you think about how often it was that uh, people say, well the democratic party is filled with pedophiles the the qAnon conspiracy or or uh turning human beings like migrants coming from the south to the us mexico border into germs like they're coming to infest our country they they have right. disease and things like that when when language like that is used for outsiders or for issues it is fascist and it is anti-intellectual because people don't want other people to think deeply; they just want you to feel something.
4: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and, and so, abortion and pedophilia, I think, are the big culture war issues, uh, along with, cr critical race theory. And oh my gosh, your children are being taught to hate themselves, uh, which is, which is not true. So, all of these uh, these issues ha- have something in common, which is uh, the intended emotion is disgust.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. And it's it's also all around. They're coming for our families and your children,
1: right? And so there's a a sense of I need to protect my family or my community, uh, especially for men. I think there's a yeah uh, a, kind of a it taps into some kind of potentially toxic idea that I'm the only one who can go out and protect my family against this uh, against ideas. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I think there's that. And I think then when it comes to scripture and science, it is very anti-intellectual. So I, I, I think every time I talk w- with folks who are about, a, uh, like, for example, on abortion, I, I weigh in selectively on certain debates that are happening on, on Facebook, I'm one of those uh, people who, who tries to insert polite, thoughtful comments here and there. Mm-hmm. Um But then you're a baby killer. Well, there's that, but also, yeah, there's a whataboutism, but also um, in the most hopeful sense, when I say, what about Exodus 21, and people take one or two steps down that path, they are just shocked. They didn't know these things. And so they're not sure what to do anymore, and they leave the discussion. That suggests to me that there's some hope for these uh, discussions.
0: right right i think that the point that you make about disgust you know that is a it's a high motivator like it's it's an innate motivator and then also the getting people to feel deeply and as opposed to think deeply is helpful for fascism and social control um and so i hope that your book inspires people to do and learn differently and admit that we are unconsciously incompetent when it comes to the majority of these things. We just don't know what we don't know. Unconsciously incompetent is a great phrase. Yes.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
2: So, so we're going to wrap up here, even though we could talk about this for for hours uh, and there's so much more in your book. We've touched on a a lot of it, but not, not anywhere near all of it. So, but, but before we go, could you tell us where people can, can, find you on the internet and and anything you'd like to plug.
1: Um, so I'm on uh, Facebook, Twitter and Instagram um, but I I would love for people to to take a look at my organization's website and that is at www.anastasiscenter.org and that is spelled a n a s t a s i s anastasis it's the greek word for resurrection and uh, uh, there's a there's a beautiful piece of artwork called the Anastasis that I'm drawing from. So there's a, a lot of uh, material there on uh, Christian restorative justice or a relational vision of justice, which I think abortion is is certainly part of. Our, our, I think it, we need to be informed by relational visions of justice because mm-hmm. um, because even you know treating the mother and the fetus as as one, but also re- two who are related is, is really vital. And then you bring in the role of the father and that gets, and, and the role of other people, like something as basic as this question, are we responsible for other people's children? Uh, I mean, mm. I think Senator Ron Johnson recently said no, but, and, and, and I think that displays that the retributive mindset of, dare I say, white evangelicalism, um, because they believe in a a highly retributive God, and mm-hmm. uh, right. I think mm-hmm. to to believe more and more in a relational and a restorative uh, God who who calls us into responsibility for other people's children, yeah.
4: right.
1: um, uh, I think is is really really important. Hmm.
2: So Mako has a lot to say on a lot of subjects, and you should go listen to him if you couldn't tell. That was that had yeah. All your stuff on restorative justice is is super interesting, and um, people should definitely check out that website. What are your What are your handles on uh, social media?
1: Oh, on on Facebook, Mako Nagasawa, M A K O, uh, last name N A G A S A W A, and on Twitter it's at Mako underscore Nagasawa, and on Instagram I think it's just Mako Nagasawa.
2: Thank you so much for being with us listeners just as a quick reminder uh, please do in addition to going to um, go to ktfpress.com slash free month sign up for the free month of our subscription please do consider supporting us that way if you are um, at all uh, benefiting from what we're doing we would really really appreciate the support. please also follow us on Facebook Instagram and Twitter at ktfpress uh, follow subscribe whatever your podcast player says to this show give us a rating and review all of those things are uh, extremely helpful to us and we really appreciate you doing them um as always our theme song is citizens by john Guerra. our podcast art is by jacqueline tam and we will see you all in two weeks
0: Yeah, I, uh, so I'll say I. The question that I have on here is about scripture, and I think we, Jonathan, yeah, do whatever you want me. I'm go
2: off about Jerry Falwell. Do no. whatever,
4: <laughs> go for it.
0: <laughs> oh, I have, I, have, Michael, I have a lot of thoughts.